Hub and Spoke Audio Collective Print is Dead Long Live Print is made possible by the support of American illustration and American photography. Long considered by creative professionals as the preeminent source for today's top image makers, AIAP curates the leading edge in editorial, advertising, book, poster, design, animation, fine art, and unpublished work created by established, emerging, and student illustrators and photographers. For more information, visit ai-ap.com. I still worry sometimes when the design of anything is so successful that whoever the boss is will start to believe that what the designers are doing, they're just doing for the sake of awards and for the sake of design and not on the same mission as everyone else. So I don't know if that's what was starting to happen a little bit then, but just the time was changing and Fred wasn't really up for going in the direction that it was heading and it needed a new voice. And I knew that I had to do something totally different, that I didn't have another magazine in me at that moment because I felt like I had the best job ever. And how am I going to top this? And I needed a good scare because I was starting to coast. This is Print is Dead, Long Live Print, a podcast about magazines and the people who made and make them. I'm Deborah Bishop. I'm Patrick Mitchell. It's impossible to look at Gail Anderson's body of work and not be reminded of the limitless potential of design. A traditional biography might pinpoint her education at the School of Visual Arts in the early 80s as her launch pad, but Gail actually kicked off her career much earlier when, as a kid, she created and designed her very own Jackson 5 magazine. What followed was a series of career moves that also happened to coincide with major inflection points in the history of American graphic design. After SVA, where she was mentored by Paula Scher and Karen Goldberg, Anderson accepted her first job at Random House, where Louise Feely was reimagining book cover design. Next, Gail made the move north to join Ron Campisi and Lynn Staley's team at the Boston Globe at a time when the paper and its internationally renowned Sunday magazine filled design award annuals. Building on that experience, Anderson was summoned back home to New York to help Rolling Stone's brand new art director, Fred Woodward. The two would spend the next 14 years showing the rest of us how magazine design is done. Upon Woodward's departure for GQ, Anderson exits stage right to join her SVA classmate Drew Hodges at Spotco, a firm that specializes in work for theater. This, naturally, happens to be the precise moment Broadway was learning new ways to present the magic of the stage to new generations of audiences. Also, just a quick sidebar to point out that in the middle of all of the above, Gail was collaborating with Stephen Heller as he was ramping up his side gig as one of the world's leading design book authors. And now, Gail is back at SVA, working with aspiring designers yet again at a moment when everything about the design world is about to change. It'd be implausible and wrong to suggest that Gail Anderson Forrest gumped her way through her career. You could call it luck, she does, but the reality is that Gail Anderson made her own choices, created her own opportunities, designed, there we said it, herself a life, all the while bringing to the world what everybody loves about her, her sense of self, her joy for life, her humility, and her standards of excellence. All right, so in all this research I've done, you come across as a person who just seems like you walked out of the womb fully warm, which is usually a a statement on the kind of family you grew up in. But if you don't mind, why don't you tell us a little bit about your mom and dad and your siblings Aww. growing up in, in the Bronx? In the Bronx, yeah. Yeah, my family's from Jamaica in the West Indies and came to the Bronx. We were the first family on our block of color and got a lot of resistance to to our presence. And I don't think of my folks as pioneers, but in a way they sort of were and they rolled with it. And as kids, my sister and I didn't realize that something was different, but we kind of kept to ourselves a bit. And and I think the neighbors soon realized that we were harmless and that we kept our house as, you know, 
as nice as everybody else. My father mowed a little strip of grass out front. Our next door neighbors, we had a shared driveway. They wouldn't use the driveway if we were outside. They wouldn't sit on their back porch, stuff like that. Neighbors across the street, the had alternate side pick up for garbage and they would put their garbage on our side of the street. And my father would walk it back over and say, no, tomorrow is your day. Please put your garbage in front of your house. And you know, we grew up not turning our bikes in other people's driveways and things like that, thinking we were being polite and not really realizing like we just had to sort of be extra careful. That can really have a long-term effect on a person. It does. It made me feel like I've got to work 10 times as hard, you know, sort of Jamaica with three jobs and, and same for my sister and sort of stay under the radar and don't make a fuss and all that. It, it really sticks with you for your whole life. Yeah. Yeah. So. so sad. Were either of your parents in creative fields? No. My father by trade was a watchmaker. He learned from his father, who was a jeweler in Christiana in Jamaica. And my mother, when she started working, when they came to New York, she was in a steno pool and she hated that and had us and then later was taking classes at a local high school, taking steno classes and refreshing her typing and thinking, okay, time to get back out there. And then ended up working for the Salvation Army store in Mount Vernon near where we grew up in the Bronx. And she was a sales clerk until she retired and they moved to Leisure Town in New Jersey, where every day is Sunday and lived out their lives there. All right. Well, so watchmaking, you know, I could see how that could catch a girl's eye. I mean, I mean, again, you've got all the traits of a thoroughbred designer. And I understand you made your own little magazines as a kid. Um, and I wish I, I still had them. I've got everything else. And somehow I don't have those magazines. That's yeah. a shame. Well, maybe really? you could make one for us. And then I saw an I interview guess. you did with one of your classmates from Cardinal Spellman. Oh. It sort of got the impression you might have been that art kid that we all Oh, I was had. the art kid. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Were you yes. the art kid? I, I was the art kid. Yeah. So, I won the art award when I graduated. Yeah. Val DeFebo who's CEO at Deutsch. She yeah. was president of our student body and we worked for her. I was one of her advisors on the president's council. And yeah, Val's going off to do great things. She's the boss. So Cardinal Spellman. You're both the boss. Creativity. Yeah. Tom Woodruff, illustrator, went to Spellman. Sonia Sotomayor, an unusual wow. group of people are Spellmanites. Amazing. When I was little, I had a thing. <laughs> I was still little, but I had a thing for the monkeys Oh, Davy Jones, Peter oh. Tork, Mike and Nesmith. also this TV show called Bewitched. And now I hear that you had a thing for teen magazines. I spec still have my teen magazines. I still have my spec and 16 magazines. All right. And a group called the Jackson Five. The Jackson Five. Yes. My scrapbook is at the Smithsonian now. I so. saw that. Yeah. All held right. together with Elmer's glue that's still held up over these years. You get to pick one Jackson 5 member to spend the rest of your life with. Uh, Who is it? You know, when I was a kid, it was Michael. And then I was like, yeah, maybe it's Marlon. Marlon's a little uh, more complicated. A little deep. Marlon, I thought Marlon was pretty cute. Yeah. Yeah. And he's aged nicely. Got a mustache. Is alive. <laughs> so that counts. Gail, was there a eureka moment in your life when you realized that graphic design was the thing that you wanted to do? Well, since you're my peers, you know that it was like commercial art then yes. and not graphic design. But in high school uh, at Cardinal Spellman, there was a book, The Careers in the Arts, that D. Ito wrote for SVA, a little black book. And I borrowed the book from our art school library. And I was like, huh, this is what I want to do. So that book and the Paul Davis to be good is not enough when you dream of being great poster for SVA that was in my art room at Spellman. I was like, I'm going to go there. I'm wow. going to do this. And years I later, meeting D. Ito, Marshall Arisman's wife, and being friends with her now in, in my dotage, I said, that book like changed my life. And that to be good is not enough when you dream of being great line that you wrote, D. You know? Ooh. Wow. You ended up going to SVA. Were your parents supportive of you being a, a graphic designer? Did, did they know what that was? No. Commercially? No, we were first generation, so they just wanted us to go to college in New York in commuting distance. And I wanted to go to an art high school. And they said, no, get a well-rounded education. And when I said I wanted to go to SVA, are you sure? Is it a college? And so it counted as college. 
And I don't even know if I visited the school, but I certainly know they didn't. I don't think they even knew where it was. They came to graduation and that was about it. Well, it was money well spent and clearly set you off on the right track. During your years at SVA in the 80s, let's talk about the women who were in graphic design at that oh time. Some of them were your teachers and your mentors, among yeah. them Paula Cher, okay. King and Louise Feely. What made them so influential to you and really to everybody? Louise, I didn't meet until I started working at Random House, but that was, you know, a minute after school. Paula and Karen, of course, were our teachers. And the fact that they were women, first of all, and they were kind of sassy and bold and and cool. And the work that they were doing, we all copied it and we all thought it was great. And it was, well, if they can do this and we can all do this too. Absolutely. Women, so... women who were cool. I, I don't think I knew too many. No. But, you know, they were hugely influential in, in their inspirations. They worked for record companies and were inspired by the mm -hmm. history of graphic design, which I think is very important to you as well in, in terms of your yeah. style and what you like. Yeah. I mean, I feel like I inherited that from all of them and certainly from Louise when I got to know her at Random House and the books that I look at on her shelf, everything that Paula had, just being in Karen's orbit. These women knew history and we weren't taking history of graphic design or anything like that in school. We were you know, taking European painting and world art kind of stuff. And so this was, oh my goodness, getting print magazine and CA and upper and lower case and all those were our Bibles then. And these were expensive magazines. So you held on to them and the annuals. Richard Wilde in his visual literacy class gave us the Art Directors Club annual. I still have mine from 1980 or 82 that, that he gave us. And there was no internet. So you just peruse those annuals and stole from them. Yeah. Oh my goodness. So much good stuff. And going to Rizzoli in Strand and- wow. God, yeah. so... I think we all became bookaholics. Mm -hmm. I was obsessed. And now yeah. I have and... all these books that are still oh, with them. Oh, I know. <laughs> yep. Yep. And I still buy books and more books and they are stacked up there. I bring them into work now and scan stuff and share it with students. And Jim Bieber has promised Karen Goldberg's design books to the school for making a Karen Goldberg oh, wonderful. library for faculty. And I've been buying some contemporary books to add to that. And there's such value in that. I give books to the sophomores now in my class and they're like, what? And some of them leave them. Like, you don't want this? It's too heavy. Oh, it's too heavy. All right, I the have world's a non, changed. Non sequitur here, but I, I read this and I just can't leave it alone. I'm sure it must have been a real conundrum for you when you were at a fork in the road of which career do I pursue? You did not pursue the nurse's aid, nurse's job. Oh my God. Oh. The wrapping of the dead bodies. The wrapping of the bodies. Hell, I, I had so, no idea. My parents, God, were socials. How could you let your daughter, a teenager, be wrapping bodies as a part-time job? You know? But I made six thirty-five an hour up to when I was leaving seven, seven and change an hour. Minimum wage was two sixty-five or two thirty-five. So I was, you know, banking bucks there. But I was washing dead bodies. <laughs> if that was me, I'd still be washing my hands every five minutes. There was no Purell background. But I knew from that experience, those years from junior year in high school right to the end of college, I am never going to work that hard again. Physical labor. I enjoyed what I was doing in school. I would sit in the break room and do my work and people would come in and say, yeah, you study hard and get out of here and go out there and all, all that sort of stuff was very inspirational. I was like, I am exhausted. And I've got Verisco's things at like 16 from doing this work, L lifting people up and toilets and all that. Well, so you're a lifelong New Yorker. You were born and raised there. You went to school yep. there. You yep. lived there almost forever. Almost forever. But, uh, yeah. I want to talk about Boston. You went to work at the Globe, the Boston Globe mm -hmm. in 1985. Can you talk about what it was that drew you here? Let me preface that by saying the Globe was kind of a design thing back then. Um, mm -hmm. I've look, been looking in a lot of old design annuals and the work Ron Campisi was doing at the Globe magazine was super mm -hmm. influential. And so that's what started it. But then, you know, all of these people that I'm about to name passed through the doors around the time you were there. Ron Campisi, obviously, Lynn Staley, mm -hmm. you, Richard Baker, Terry Richard. Bell. And others I, I maybe don't remember, but I'd love to hear what drew you to Boston and what that experience was like. 
I wanted to work in a magazine when I was in school and ended up at Random House as my first job and was really enjoying it. And Terry Coppell got in touch and said there was a job in Boston that Ron was looking for someone. I, he told me about the Globe. I knew of his lineage there. And I thought, all right, let me, yeah, let me just meet them. And I went up and I thought, okay, I'll do this for a few years. It's an opportunity to work at a magazine. I thought a Sunday magazine is going to be really fast paced where book publishing was very slow and I'm going to learn a lot quickly. And on Terry's recommendation and Paula's, I moved up there for a couple of years and worked with Richard and Rena Sokolow and Lucy Bartholomew and, and Katie Aldridge and my goodness, so many wonderful people, the nicest people you could imagine at that point in my life. It felt like family and I had a wonderful roommate and I had a car and we lived in a good size apartment in Somerville in a triple decker on the top floor and this like wooden house. And I think Lucy and I paid 365 total. It was nothing. We've all worked on sort of Sunday magazine type things and it is accelerating. In two years, you can knock out a hundred magazines. Yes. But looking back after that experience, it seemed like you came out of school open to any kind of future career, but this globe thing must have sort of pushed you in a certain direction. I loved assigning illustration and I loved the pace and what I was learning, being away from home and exploring a new state and area, new friends. It, it was really exciting. And working for Lynn Staley on the Sunday magazine was life-changing. And I only sort of dipped my toe on the idea of coming back to New York because our editor, Andy Zellman, would always talk about this guy, Fred, who she worked with at, I think, D. And he was doing Texas Monthly. And I'd look at that and say, this is really cool. He, he was doing a Sunday magazine. At yeah. The yes. He did a, a yeah. Sunday magazine as well. And she said, you're very much like him and you would like him. And then he was doing Regardies and I subscribed to that. And it's like, oh, this guy does great stuff. And one day I saw the George Harrison cover of Rolling Stone. It's like, well, this looks different. And I was like, it's that guy again. It's Andy's friend, Fred. And I said, I'm going to reach out to him and see if he'll look at my portfolio. And I had slides made, 35 millimeter slides of all my raggedy globe stuff and set like pages of it. I had so much work because I'd done so much in the couple of years. And, and I, I can't believe I did that. And I called one evening and nobody else was there. And he picked up the phone because he was young and naive enough. And he was like, hello at night. And he's like, this is Fred. And I explained, I was Andy Selman's friend. Blah, blah. And he's like, well, you know, you can send me some work. And I happened to be looking for someone. I was like, all right, thank you very much. And I thought, well, maybe everybody picks up the phone when you call them like that. And I sent work and he called and I hadn't said anything to Lynn, to anybody. And when Fred called, our secretary picked up and she said, Fred Woodward's on the phone for you. And I was like, huh? And like, Fred, what? From me? So that was that. And I flew down after work and met him and was so wowed. And he was so lovely and big giant smile and his fancy clothes and all that hair. And he didn't hire me, but he kind of left me hanging for quite a long time. And of course, I assumed while I was waiting that he was going to hire me. So I was like wrecked with, you know, what am I going to do? Yeah. And meanwhile, nobody's calling me, but I've kind of figured all this out and up all night and so finally, like, I'm calling him. And finally, I just sort of gave up. And I was going on vacation with my roommate and her family. And he called my house and said, well, you know, I had to go with somebody else who's more experienced because I'm still new and I can't take on somebody junior. I'm out the door going to Maine. I was like, all right, good luck. Bye. I had given up at that point. I was like, well, that was nice of him to call me back, but I'm going on vacation now. And didn't give it any more thought. Joined the gym. I'm going to change my life. And he calls a couple months later says, well, things have changed. And he's just such a gentleman that he called Andy. He called the editor and said, I'm going to call her. Is that okay? Oh my that God. Nobody would do now. So everybody else knew, but me. Like a marriage proposal. That was his friend. And that was the right thing to do, you know, and probably find out like, is she a freak? Should I not do this? And then Lynn, she's not even there. Her husband took her to London from her 40th birthday. I'm like accepting this job. I was like, eh. oh, and you were so I, close to Lynn. Oh my God. I called her that Sunday so that she wouldn't find out from anybody else. And she's just like, what? 
talk to you on Monday. Bye. Well, really, very kind of you to give Fred a couple months to change his mind. Now we'll catch that Gail Anderson wave. So then I get there and he has no place for me to sit. I spent the first couple months in his office with him because there was somebody freelancing who was my old roommate from school and she wasn't going anywhere. So like, where am I going to sit? Well, you can sit with me. I was like, oh, we have two strangers making small talk for months. We'll be right back. Print is Dead is made possible with the support of Mag Culture. Read our online journal, listen to our podcast, and visit our shop to discover why we're convinced print is very much alive. All available at magculture.com. Print is Dead is made possible by the support of the Society of Publication Designers. The SPD powers the future of visual storytelling, setting the standard for editorial excellence, and shaping the future of visual culture. For more information, visit spd.org. Who was in the art department then? Joel Kyler, Karen Simpson, me. That was the three of us and Fred. And if I recall my Fred timeline correctly, this was 88, 89? I started there in 87. 87? I think, yeah. Really at the very beginning. Rolling Stone was just, my God, you know, a once in a lifetime event, really for all of us. For people like both of you who were part of it and for all of us watching from a distance. And I just would love to step back and hear you both talk about those days because that's really just, I mean, it was a moment in magazine history that needs to be preserved. What can we talk about? We were working so hard, Deb, that we, we didn't even we, realize that yeah, it was a no, moment we in history. Were, oh, one of the things I remember the most, clearly I learned so much, it was my first editorial job. Everything was done by hand or on the copier. Do you remember that? Oh, yeah. Until, of course, we, we did have to switch to computers. For me, it was sort of like in the middle somewhere. For you, it was probably in the beginning. Yeah. But what do we miss most about the pre-computer days? You really thought about your decisions. You thought about your letter spacing. You thought about the typefaces you were getting Reverend Jim to set on the typositor. When we were still at 745 Fifth Avenue, you went up and down the stairs to make copies, to try to get a degraded copy of something or to blow something up 5%, 15%. Yeah, yeah. for the younger listeners, it was coveted to have that sort of worn type look. And and the way we used to do it was on the Xerox machine, on mm-hmm. our copier machine. And we would actually just stick it down on our mechanical board. Speaking of mechanicals. I, I had some of the mechanicals when I left. I because Again, because I had everything. And I donated them to the library at school. And some of them were still hanging together. And they show them to students. And they're like, what? One of the things <sighs> that I remember about Fred, who I enjoyed working with so much, and have so much respect for, as well as Gail, was he would come up to you very gingerly with a photo or an illustration, as though it was like his only child, and hand it to you, as though to say, this is precious. Now go away and design. Yeah. But at the same time, I felt Fred was very generous with his assignments. Once he Mm -hmm. gave you an assignment, it was yours, Mm -hmm. and you had to get a final approval. But we would have... Mm -hmm. What, three days to conceive a spread and then three days to execute it? Yeah, while you were working on the departments. So it wasn't like you were just laser focused on the feature. Was Fred assigning these illustrations? Gail would assign. I was assigning a lot of them because that I came equipped to do from the Globe because I assigned so much art there with Lynn. And I had a good sense of who was out there at the time and... We look at American Illustration and Society of Illustrators Annual, and I got all those samples in the mail and had them pinned up on the walls. And I really enjoyed that. And I was sort of managing deadlines and other stuff. So I had administrative stuff to do and probably a little less design at times to to my liking. I wish I could have done even more, but I really enjoyed working with the artists. And I was always on the phone and you made these wonderful friendships, these phone friendships that I can't imagine exists now. And getting the art, getting the FedEx package or the messenger package and, and opening it, gently opening the piece. Oh my goodness, the piece of art. Wow. Amazing. You, I want to say this as gently as possible because you worked with genius illustrators who probably needed very little direction. I worked with genius illustrators. Yes. And you who, gave them very little direction. And the editors were appreciative and into it and we maybe talked about sketches a little bit, but it, it was sort of our show. And that was the genius of Fred, that Fred 
was a journalist and Fred was an editor. And so he was a peer. And we all learned that and took that into our careers later that we weren't subservient, we were equals. And we had opinions and we had questions. And that came from Fred writing headlines, just being really involved. And, you know, Debs made a whole career of being a collaborator in magazines. So yeah, that was Fred. For me, that was Lynn Staley at the Globe, the same kind of like, why don't we do this? And it, it was never this one's in charge. We're, we're just making it. Remember AIGA Graphic Arts Weekend, where you would get studio visits with art directors? It was, it was literally on a Saturday and a Sunday, and you would pay a fee to come to New York, and you'd get three studio visits over two days. And my first studio visit was to Fred, so I came to the Rolling Stone office. But he gave me a, a takeaway that I have lived with forever, which was he said he would wait until the art came in to design. And, you know, that's partly his confidence that he could come up with something. I know he was super respectful and his main mission was just don't fuck up this art. But looking at both of your work, so intricate and so ornate, it's hard to imagine that the process of assigning the art was independent of the design. Did you have layouts sketched out? to work the illustration into? Or was it really just like, I'll get this back and then I'll, what did Deb say, go make a masterpiece? We weren't part of the, the photo assignments at all. So we received something to scan and then work with it. So the layout so it was a surprise. Entirely, it was entirely response to the yes. photo. Yes. Yeah. I, I call that reacting. And I think yeah. we learned a lot about doing that. That was the game. Too. Even the illustration, yeah. right? Yeah. I think it was a lot about reacting and we had to do it fast. When I got to spot later on, it was assigned multiple artists do the same thing and give them lots of direction. And I was like, oh my goodness, this is so different and difficult and needs so much more kind of diplomacy. That was a whole different beast. But the Rolling Stone moment was opening the piece and seeing something beautiful and then responding and always working with a headline, working with live copy as much as possible. You you weren't just sort of making it up and then putting something in place later. And that came from all of us being unfamiliar with the technology and all coming from the old school way of doing it. And I'm sure now it's quite different, but at the time you waited until you had the elements and then you came up with an idea. You didn't just sort of place things on a page. No, but as an observing party, I would say that speaks a lot to your confidence, both in your own skills and your confidence in selling what you're doing to your editors. It wasn't really selling. Yeah. We didn't have he to. Went, yeah. Right. We were so lucky. Yeah. Fred did any selling, if there was any selling, but they trusted him and that was his job. The visuals were his job. The one yeah. thing I will say about Rolling Stone design, which I think you would concur, Gail, was that we had a very strong format in the Oxford rule. So we could play. Almost anything mm -hmm. would be fine within those parameters, mm -hmm. within that Oxford rule. You still knew you were in Rolling Stone. Mm -hmm. And it was such a strong brand framework that we could really play within. So mm -hmm. oftentimes our type was separate it was much harder to create a sort of seamless spread where you were reacting to the photograph. And we did that all mm -hmm. the time, but oftentimes we could have a sort of a separate type piece opposite something else that was mm -hmm. in that rule. They became posters, you know? Yeah. In addition to the incredible photography illustration typography, I mean, you guys had all of this custom type done. I know you worked with a lot of outside people, but you probably did a lot in-house mm -hmm. too. Unbelievable. I know so who's got funny. the energy now. What do, what were we thinking? I know Ooh. a lot of times in in person, and Gail dealt with them. Do you remember our visit from Jonathan Heffler, yeah, Dennis Jonathan, Ortiz, Lopez, like nineteen, yeah. and illustrators? In those days, there was no internet to send your artwork over. Mm -hmm. Do you remember Philip Burke sending yeah. his piece? Oh my goodness! Or walking it in? You know, yeah. from Buffalo, and part of the joy that. Gail was talking about was opening up the FedEx package, right? Yep. I remember meeting Marshall Arisman for the first time in him telling stories about being a witch. And I, I'm like, who is this man? Fred, what? And Paul Davis coming to the office and like these legends were coming in and Fred would always like, oh, you got to meet like, like, what? That was so cool. 
It was like a renaissance, you know, Rolling Stone was ground zero for magazines. So great. The one thing I remember, though, that has nothing to do with any of this, was we were still in the old office. Deb, you, were you there then? Maybe not. David Cassidy came to the office. And all of us of a certain age, and we were kids, but we were all of a certain age. And he came in and people were like, who's that? We're like, it's David Cassidy. And he was so tickled that we were just like, oh, my God. Now, you know, of course, people have got their phones out. I remember John F. Kennedy Jr. And we followed him around. I mean, he came in for a visit. I guess when George, his magazine Mm -hmm. was just starting. Yeah. And he came in and we. Yeah. Like you hold up some paper and go like, I'm going to go down the hall. And one time. Madonna came in, but I, unfortunately, was on vacation or something. I missed it. Well, this is before all of our time, but if you read either Jan Winner's book or Sticky Fingers, the non-winner book, there's a great story in there about Annie Leibovitz shooting David Cassidy nude for a cover. Very young David Cassidy. Yes, I remember that cover. I remember that little bit of the cut there that you saw and yeah. it's like it's a little hair like what david cassidy i remember our story gals tell your favorite story about rolling stone what oh, would you do you have one i remembered in sync being there and hank came in fred brought his son in hoping to meet them and i sat out with hank for the morning as they traipsed by and went in the conference room and did whatever they were doing and hank had a cover for them to sign. And he just sat there. He was like three or four years old. And they came out to go to the bathroom and they turned and everybody just kind of looked. And Justin Timberlake said, what's up, chief? And Hank was just like, what? And then when he came back from the bathroom, he made the rest of them stop and sign autographs for Hank. And that was so sweet. What's up, chief? Gail, a lot of us, you know, again, watching on the outside, it seemed like if and when Fred ever left, that you would be the obvious choice to no. step in there. But that didn't happen. He left. And I knew my days were numbered. It was going in a different direction. The real estate was getting smaller and smaller for what we did. And Jan wanted to sort of be more of a newspaper. And all the fancy stuff was kind of done. So I knew my yeah, days I'd were heard numbered. Rumors yeah. that Jan was maybe a little threatened by the massive success of the design of Rolling Stone. I I still worry sometimes when the design of anything is so successful that whoever the boss is will start to believe that what the designers are doing, they're just doing for the sake of awards and for the sake of design, and that they're not on the same mission as everyone else. So I don't know if that's sort of what was starting to happen a little bit then. But just the time was changing, and there wasn't the real estate to do the big openers, and Fred wasn't really up for going in the direction that it was heading. And I only knew that direction, so I wouldn't have been able to do anything else. And it needed a new voice, so it wasn't a matter of promoting new. I've been there 14 years, and I was done, and I knew that I had to do something totally different, that I didn't have another magazine in me. At that moment, because I felt like I had the best job ever, and how am I going to top this? I need to just try something else, because I have no obligations, and let's see what doing something else is like. And I put that out there into the world a bit, and something wonderful and exciting happened that that challenged me and scared me, and I needed a good scare, because I was starting to coast. And going into a, a new job where you have no reputation to precede you that it's sort of starting over was really hard, but was what I needed. And working for a classmate at first, I thought, well, this is going to be weird, but it turned out to be okay. Before we leave Rolling Stone, maybe a a, a bit inspired by Jan's recent implosion, would you say women have been treated fairly or been given the same opportunities? It has come up often in our podcast. And Deb has talked in the past about women being stereotyped in terms of what kinds of magazines they can design, which is incredibly unfair. It felt like a man's world, but I didn't know or expect otherwise because, you know, it was a different era. And it was just the beginning of some women having a voice, some power, all of that. So all of those people who were sometimes seen as difficult, which is so wrong because they were working extra hard, that was really inspiring to see those women. And looking back now, it's like, wow, in my own little way, I hope I was, as the years progressed and I got older and older there, 
that I was one of those to an extent. People like Lori Tocqueville, she was kicking ass there. And you thought, oh, she's tough. It's like, really? Was she tough? Or was she just this woman doing this job? And that's what you needed to be to do that job. Which you had to be. Which you had to be. Exactly. And my fear now, even now in, in my old age, is is being seen as difficult or all those things that aren't ascribed to a man when they kind of have to buckle down and mean business or do something difficult, all that. Sadly, it does still exist. It's unusual in creative work where you are in a real way in communication with the audience. You're actually putting things out there to get a response. People are absorbing your work in their daily lives. Did that figure into your calculation for the next phase of your career in terms of doing work maybe a little bit more in a vacuum? What part of the joy of your work was that knowing that it was going into people's mailboxes, real people around the world, directly to them? I loved that the magazine was out there in the world. When I was at the Globe, Ron would say it's fish wrap. And we'd sort of giggle. And then I was getting off the tee and walking to... I was in Dorchester and I saw the magazine on the ground. And then I was on the green line going home from Brookline. And I was like, wait, this is my Sunday magazine. It's on the ground again. And I was like, this really is venture wrapped. And you look at it on Sunday and then you get rid of it. And that was like, I can do whatever I want because this is so ephemeral. And because Rolling Stone was every two weeks, it was sort of the same thing. We were just cranking and you didn't really have time to sort of sit back and think about this. You did it for a few days. You put it out. Some of them were great, some of them weren't, but they came and, and they went. Doing books and other things that sort of live forever, you're like, oh God, I'm going to live with this mistake for a long time. But the magazines just came and went and it was on the super calendar paper. And I love that I didn't have to think about it too hard after the fact. And you, your mistakes went away and you tried something new and just kept learning and learning. We'll be right back. Print is Dead is made possible with the support of Issues Magazine Shop. Much like this podcast, we exist to celebrate the people and projects keeping print alive. We sell a mix of independent and commercial titles from around the world, shipping globally from our retail shop in Toronto, Canada. Visit us online at issuesmagshop.com. Stack the Independent Magazine Club delivers a different publication every month to our subscribers all around the world. You never know what we're going to send next, but you do know it will be a beautiful, intelligent, independent magazine that deserves a place on your shelf. We'd love to start sending something your way, so go to stackmagazines.com to sign up and start receiving a surprise magazine every month. So you left Rolling Stone and you went to Spotco, which was a really amazing agency that focused on design for the entertainment business, especially Broadway. I saw a video of you uh, talking about Spotco, and, and in the video, they taped you walking through Times Square. Oh, yeah. I did that for a... Posters, you know, I'm just killing the <laughs> yeah. question I just asked because that exemplified how you can be in the middle of your own work out in yeah. the real world, although those of us who aren't on Broadway don't see it. But what was it about Spotco that felt right after leaving Rolling Stone for you in your next phase? It seemed like who would say no to making posters? And that's what I saw that job as initially. It's like, I'm going to make Broadway posters. What? Of course I'm going to do that. Of course I'm going to say yes to that. And it turned into so much more and was so much more complicated than posters. Posters were the least of it at a certain point. But I thought, this is something I love. I know theater. I want to stay in entertainment. And the company was growing. Drew Hodges, my classmate from SVA, wasn't really able to manage the design part of it anymore because... It was leaps and bounds there, and he had to sort of be the the showman to to talk about the work and to work with the clients. It had gone from Spot Design, which was a design studio, to Spotco, which was an advertising agency. And so I was charged with the design folks. And there was another creative director, Vinny Sonato, who actually just passed away, who was the advertising art director. And the two of us worked together, but separately. And he and his folks took what the designers made and then did the advertising. It, but Drew learned that the money was in the advertising and not in the design. And it was brilliant. And I saw so many shows. I visited so many interesting places. I learned so much. I had my work ripped to shreds by so many producers and had the designers work ripped to shreds and had to learn how to defend the work and how to be polite to those I wasn't that fond of. And I saw Drew present work to clients. And I was like, 
where'd you learn to do that? It was brilliant. And he was so gifted at that. And I thought, I, I can't do that. Like, this is going to take years. And he invested in me and eased me into that part of the job. And I was never great at it in the end, but I could get by and the clients liked me and trusted me. And so that was good. And there were some really wonderful people, but also some very difficult people. And after years of the Globe and all my wonderful friends and then Rolling Stone, where everybody was like, we're all doing great stuff together. And then this was like, wait, like I have to defend this? I have to show eight, nine versions of something? Are you kidding? And have it up pinned to the wall. We take three of them down, then we take three more down. And then that was so anathema to the Rolling Stone days. So, so it was much more iterative. God. It was much more yeah. repetitive. Drew says, Gail is a true Broadway baby. She brought a million <laughs> sense of style and typography to the theater and moved forward how sophisticated those visuals can be. Aww. So what was the process of a theater poster? Just kind of quickly. Reading the script and actually learning, for me, learning to read a script and let it stick in my head. That was the hardest part because it was so different from reading a story. And I'm like reading in two voices and three voices and and like, who's saying what? And sometimes I'd read out loud to myself at home because I was like, I don't even know what's going on anymore. So there was that. And then working with the designers, I try to pair people. Because sometimes some of these, like, I'm smart, but I'm not that smart. And some of the stuff was was pretty heady. Like, give me a musical. But when we got into the plays, we worked together so that nobody ever felt like, like, I alone must fix this, you know? People worked together to solve a problem. Because we were showing so many versions, you couldn't expect anybody to come up with 10 great versions, nine of them which will be ripped to shreds, and one that's going to be pieced together with a piece from the one at the other end of the hall. It was tough. And there were so many comps and so many good comps. And we would keep the comps like, mm, let me save this idea because I can try it again at some point. That it was a hard a library job. Library of comps. Library of comps. Yeah. That was a hard job. But I learned so much. But I also learned why people stay in their lane and go from magazine to magazine or whatever, because making the shift is really hard. And I was at that, that's their wall for Fred at SPD. People were like, you're so smart. You got out of this. How did you know? You tried something else. It feels like you and Paula maybe started this theater poster situation at a similar time. Is that no. true? Well, no, she, she started it, started the groovy stuff with the public. And she'd even done something that transferred from the public to Broadway. But I had to redo something that she'd done that they didn't want to use for Broadway. And I was like, oh, no, thanks. And I have to like write her a letter and that was a little scary. I'm not a a historian of Broadway theater design, but it seems like that was the the beginning of a new way of creating, designing. Oh yeah, definitely. Yes. Oh yes, yes, yes. And there were just a few people who did the posters. Uh, Guy Fravor, um, a name that that always popped up and things were very glossy and the stuff that Spot was doing was not as shiny. And that was very appealing to me. And one could draw the conclusion that you sort of brought editorial thinking to that kind of work. Yeah. Yeah. Storytelling. Storytelling. Yeah. But all of a sudden, I had these bigger budgets to work with and so many people to please. And that that was very different. And time, all of a sudden, with the magazine, there wasn't time to do it over and over again. And with this, it was like, well, let's go back and spend a week. Oh, my God, really? And just get somebody else on board to crank out the 15th version of something. And, you know, these were new ideas, not just a little tweak to something. And it was a great lesson and something that I do in school now. It's like, we're going to do lots of these. Let's talk about your decision to leave Spotco. Did you know what was coming next? It was like that was kind of ending at the, in the same way. That it's like, ah, it's time for something new. But really, it was that I had elderly parents who required care. And my siblings and I were going in circles and I realized I just couldn't work full time anymore. I had to be down there and do something that allowed me to put in my time since I was the farthest away of the siblings from their retirement community in Jersey. It was hard. You know, I had those in-between years of what do I do? And the consistent thread was teaching. So you chose to go to the School of Visual Arts, obviously, when you were young. Did you ever think that you would end up being the head of design in the very program that you went into? No, but when I came on, Tony Rhodes called. This was after, again, a random call. Tony Rhodes, the executive vice president, called 
after my father died and I'd done some posters for the school and he called on a Friday and said, what would you think about working here? And told me the salary to run the design studio for the school. He said, just give me an answer on Monday. I was like, wait, what? And the next week I went to talk to him. I thought, you know what? Like, why not? Again, like, let's just try something totally different. And once again, I was lucky that it, it turned into something. But I never thought about Richard Wilde's job. I was running the studio and enjoying that and teaching. And again, you have that moment like, I'm going to join a gym, but I'm going to. And then life changes again. The gym goes out the window. That's the first thing to go, of course, is the thing that's good for you. And people thought, oh, well, Richard's going to retire. Gail's the successor. Like, no. And then Richard came in one day and said, I'm going to retire. And I think you should have this job. And like, So out the door went the gym and I moved across the street. So sometimes on this podcast, we we talk about magazines as if everything's, you know, the way it used to be. But we're curious as a teacher at school that has turned out its fair share of magazine makers over the decades. Does anyone talk about magazines there still? I mean, we is, have are magazines add. part of the curriculum? We added an extra class because there's been a renewed interest. Wow. Bob Best was teaching editorial and still is. And Matt Lenning started teaching a couple of years ago because they were like, we don't want more magazine stuff. Like, really? Yes, please. And so now Matt's done and I've got to find someone. Anybody out there who wants to teach an editorial design class? What is this new thing look like? What are their interests? They sometimes see it as those sort of sullen journals, you know, of the sort of sad looking thin people standing there looking in their clothes. So it's like, mm, let's try something else and not unhappy just Unhappy hipsters. Do you remember that? Yes. Unhappy hipsters. Yeah. 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 But they're into the architecture of the page. They're curious about that. And some of them are actually into the storytelling, which has been wonderful. Storytelling and editorial systems, because that's very yeah. helpful when you're designing things mm -hmm. like websites, etc. Well, also throw in the fact that unlike when we were in school, they can actually produce a fully printed, full color, stitched magazine for mm -hmm. nothing. Nothing. Yep. And you can do it from the printer at school, from the copier. And it binds it and staples it. And it's like, there's your magazine right there. And then there's a zines class because they love that too. And it just started to happen a couple of years ago. So that's, that's been great. wonderful. That's well, there's a lot of indie magazines out there. Yeah. So Steve Heller, the wonderful Steve Heller, who you have done at mm -hmm. least 14 books with, authored uh, with Steve mm -hmm. Heller. How did you ever fit that into your busy career? I'd gotten to know Louise and met Steve when they were dating. So that's how long ago this was. He would come to the office at Random House and scoot by. And I was like, who is that man? And she's like, that's my boyfriend. I was like, what? And he just loved her so much. And I said, if he ever needs help with a book, I would love to help him. And she was like, I'll tell him. And then he got in touch and was like, I could use some help with a book. So like, where okay. were you working when you started the first I was at Rolling Stone. Oh my goodness. Okay. And I was living with my parents. It was very early on. So I was in the Bronx again. And he'd say, okay, meet me at 6.30. So I'd go down there at 6.30 or 7. He would meet illustrators then and go through their portfolios like rapid fire and then say, no, I can't use you. And then look at the next person. It was so ballsy. And they were just like lined up. And then he would talk to me and we would talk about, we were working on a book called Graphic Wit. And this is again, pre-internet. So it was like faxing people and sending mail and getting packages and I really enjoyed him and he was smart and funny and I didn't know what he was talking about most of the time. So I was like always taking notes and I, you make no money with books, but working with him, I learned so much and I learned about design outside of New York City and then outside of well, the state and outside of the country and then around the world. And You must have been working 24-7. Steve says mm -hmm. she is a perfect fit for BFA, meaning Bachelor of Fine Arts. <sighs> at SVA, as she was a perfect fit for the visual arts press. Her typographic playfulness is without equal. It's what Aww. she lives for. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. I remember you being very shy and soft-spoken. Still am. Um, and so how did you overcome it and end up traveling all over the world speaking and lecturing about graphic design? I, I need to know this. Because it's easier to talk to a bunch of strangers than it is to a few people. I learned that instantly. I can talk to a sea of people I don't know. But if I'm in a room with a few people I do know, I'm like, oh, I'm going to say something stupid. Uh. Yeah. And it's one of those things that you just keep doing it. You know, you get better at it. 
And then you get old and you don't give a shit anymore. And you're like, what's what I think? Where have you been? You've been all over the place. What's your favorite place? I was in Ireland this summer in Connemara on the West Coast with the sheep. It's so much fun. And you're just making stuff by hand. And I was just there sort of visiting and I did some talks. I spoke in Galway and in Dublin and there was a radio show. And then I was at the program and I'm going to go back this summer and teach. And it was life changing. And I'm like, those are sheep. First of all, I'm driving on the wrong side of the road. Ah. But, you know, so stuff like that, it's to visit someplace you wouldn't otherwise. I spent time with Karen and Jim, with Karen Goldberg and husband Jim Bieber in, in Slovenia. We were years ago in Ljubljana speaking at a conference together. And so you end up making these little connections to people in a different way and getting to know them. And it's been really nice to meet folks and to visit places that I might may not get to otherwise. Yeah, I've been really lucky. And because I still am Jamaican with three jobs, I'm like, yeah, okay, I'll do it. Yeah, okay. So if I don't say yes, they're never going to ask me again. I hope you have time to relax once in a while, Gail. Gail, you've talked about therapy a lot. And I don't want to pry into your personal business. <laughs> I could have gotten her on the call too. <laughs> can you share what, you know, maybe the most valuable lesson you've learned or what's maybe changed your thinking after doing all this work? Uh, yes. A little less putting myself down, you know, a little more confidence, a little less ruminating and blaming myself and taking everything personally and all that. Having somebody who isn't in the thick of it who will listen to it, but who doesn't have to be like, okay, I got to go now uh, until she literally has to go now. So I'm not burdening a friend with my whininess. It's like, oh, that's what this is for. And that's been great to work with someone through all these different transitions who's been really supportive and who knows the whole story at this point because it's been so many years. Same person? Yeah. That's great. Yeah. it's, It's really funny. And in person, Zoom, whatever. Has she helped you with uh, a habit that we both have, which is collecting, hoarding? <laughs> we spent some time discussing that, yes. At one point, she was like, you want me to just come over and help you? Because <laughs> I just threw back the curtain and she's like, oh, for God's I, sake. I, I so. need to do some Marie condoing myself. What was your hoarding slash collecting wheelhouse? Um, what was the thing? Well, it was salt and pepper shakers, hundreds. And they're really fun and silly. All that stuff that we all collected that I just kept going with. And now I'm just like, nope, I don't want anything. I still have all this stuff that I still love, but I kind of don't really want at this point. But nobody else wants it. Greenfield is up and going again. We can each do a booth. I have many tins. Remember I used to collect type tins? Yes. Um, I remember. Are you at least able to navigate to your bedroom through your apartment? Okay. Where I am now, I'm up in Woodstock and there's a lot of stuff here. In my apartment, there is a couch that I sleep on and some boxes, and that's it. Before the pandemic, they were doing electrical work, and everybody had to move all their stuff to the middle of the room to do the electrical work. And then the pandemic, so all the stuff stayed for a year in the middle of the room. But I'd gotten rid of a lot of things. I was in my, like, okay, I'm done. So I had almost no furniture left. And I thought, well, I'm going to live simply there. And I don't even unfold the couch. I've just been sleeping on the couch for the last year. So I've gotten also lazier, but just to have these bare walls and not stuff. Yeah. It, it's kind of what happens yeah. naturally well, as you get older. You just don't yeah. need it. We wanted to hear about your, your house in Woodstock though. Oh, that's been my sanctuary these years. Yeah, Milton that, played a role in this, didn't he? Milton. Milton. Yes. Milton connected me with the architect, chose the colors looked at the plans, looked at photos. This was, here's what you're going to do. And I was like, okay. Wow, Gail, and, little known fact. Yeah. And I remember sending him pictures because I was mocking up colors in Photoshop. And he's just like, no, no. And he never came over. Was but Milton he, in Woodstock too? Yes. Milton was the other end of the road on like 50 acres or something with this Italian sign. And I would go there. And he sold that house to downsize. And bought a smaller house, of course, a beautiful house, and had that renovated. But we w- would have lunch sometimes. And he said, well, I'll be dead soon. So I'm going to give away all the stuff. I was like, oh, my God, not I'm dying. I'll be dead soon. And so he was giving away all the stuff. And right before he died, gave me a couple hundred posters to give out at school. 
And these were on foam core, some of them signed, some prints. I was just like, yes, give them to faculty. So I've been giving away Milton posters for the last couple of years. But I have oh. to like, do you know who this is? Do you know? Like, know. I'm not it's giving it to you unless you take care. I hope the kids appreciate that. No, not the kids. Faculty. 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 Not the kids. And I've been framing some of the really rare ones and hanging them at school. But yeah, he made all the choices and I just went along. What a neighbor to have. Right? Um, we're going to get to the big question in a minute, but I, but I sort of want to wrap it up here by saying, you know, you have you really lived a design life. It's, it's so awesome to hear about and to, to learn about. What is the one thing that you've made that you're the most proud of? Both the biggest and smallest thing was the postage stamp in 2012 that was released in 2013 for the 150th anniversary of the signing of the Emancipation Proclamation. That was so cool to again do something that so many people saw, you know, because my world had gotten a little smaller and then it got bigger again by by having a stamp out there. And since then, I started serving on the Citizen Stamp Advisory Committee for the Postal Service. And I just came back from Des Moines where I was judging the federal duck stamp competition. And so I have turned into this philatelist late in life. I have a new vocabulary word. Yeah. Can you translate oh God, that? I'm a stamp person. But that particular stamp had so much extra meaning. Yeah. When I got the call to do that, I was just like, you want me to come down to Washington tomorrow? It was just like, oh, like I was, it was the thick of the worst of dealing with my parents. And I left them in Leisure Town and gone on Amtrak <laughs> and gone down to DC. And the one thing that Antonio Alcala, the art director, said was, don't do type. I was like, wait, what? I can't really do anything else. And then I did type. All right. Our tradition at the end of our Print is Dead episodes is to ask the Print is Dead billion dollar question. And that is that a very rich person, take your pick, Warren Buffett, has an offer that you can't refuse. He wants to give mm-hmm. you a blank check, but with one yacht, uh-huh. mm-hmm. you have to use it to create and launch a print magazine. I have to take my, my money to launch a print magazine? What? Yeah, well, it depends. When does it become your money? That's a good question. Well, it just did. What would you make? What would I make? Well, I kind of wanted to bring back Specker 16. Can I bring back Mad Magazine in all its glory? Can I use my money for that? Mad so Magazine affected that. everything, you know? Just, yes, please. A combination of spy and mad, that would work for me. For more on Gail Anderson, visit her website, gailycurl.com, or follow her on Instagram, at gailycurl. If you'd like to connect more deeply with our guests, be sure to visit our website, where we have complete transcripts of all our interviews, along with portfolios, archival photos, links, and other great information. Visit longliveprint.co interviews for more. In other news, we've got swag. Yep, you can get Print is Dead merch on our site at longliveprint.co shop. All purchases go directly to supporting the podcast. Check back often. We're adding new stuff all the time. And finally, make sure you subscribe to our newsletter by using the form on our homepage. It's the best way to stay up to date on all of the Print is Dead news and to receive advance notice on the latest episodes. Print is Dead, Long Live Print is a member of the Hub and Spoke Audio Collective, a nonprofit association of audio storytellers dedicated to promoting and sustaining high-quality independent podcasting, including Out There, a podcast that explores big questions through intimate stories outdoors. The race is called Infinitus, but in my head, I call it Infinitus, like an inflammation in your infinity gland. <laughs> That's journalist and runner Jordan Werfs Brock. And in this episode, she explains to Out There host Willow Belden why not finishing a 500 mile race through the Green Mountains of Vermont turned out to be one of the best things that ever happened to her. You can hear the whole story at outtherepodcast.com and learn more about Hub and Spoke at hubspokeaudio.org. Print is Dead, Long Live Print is made possible by support of listeners like you. If you'd like to contribute to keeping the podcast going, there are two easy ways. One, become a sustaining patron by making a monthly donation. Or two, make a one-time donation in the amount that works best for you. Visit printisdead.co slash support for more information. Print is Dead, Long Live Print is a production of Modus Operandi Design. For more information, visit our website, 
printisdead.co. Or if you're an optimist, longliveprint.co. Follow us on social media at printisdeadpod. Please give us a like and a review on your favorite podcast app. It really helps. Thanks very much for listening.